So we will go ahead and dig in. We will be in John 17 today. Uh, we are finishing up our series called Believe Jesus, and we've said Believe Jesus about, and we've filled in a blank somewhere between uh, John uh, 15 on the way now to John 17, and today we're going to believe Jesus about glory. Uh, and it's our conviction as a church, if, if, if to be a member of a church is for you to take responsibility for a people and for a people to take a responsibility for you, that we need to be on the same page about what the Bible says. And rather than me standing up here for three months and preaching our doctrine statement, what we've done is we've worked our way through this section of John, which I think has been quite fruitful and been awesome for me personally and uh, just makes me love Jesus more and more. Uh, I'll pray for us and we'll go ahead and dig in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day. My voice belongs to you. My body belongs to you. I'm tired and you're God, so I'm okay today. Uh, Jesus, we just pray that you would lead us today into the truth, uh, that you would show us who you are more, that we would love you more, and that we would have our hearts and minds tuned to be lived for your glory that our hearts and minds would be tuned to point to your wonder and the power of your gospel, uh, that our hearts and minds would be tuned, that we would understand that our whole life is for you, and even the, the minute details of our life is for you, and that you would help us, Jesus, to glorify you by enjoying you more every day, to live for a white-hot passion for you every day to glorify you by loving others the way you've loved us, to glorify you by telling people the truth about who you are, to glorify you, Jesus, about, by enjoying your word and enjoying you in prayer. And that, Jesus, that you would lead us today, you would guide us today, and Holy Spirit, you would fill us today, that we would understand your word better. Lord, we love you and pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're in John 17, starting in verse 1. Uh, and I'm essentially going to try and answer a very basic question. Why are you here? Uh, this question has sort of uh, a, a broad application, right? We, we can sit around and philosophize. Why are we here? What's the point of life? Uh, but also, why are you here this morning? Today, you got out of bed, you didn't sleep in, and you came, and you're here. There is a reason for that. There is a reason uh, for your life. There is a reason. Uh, and, and lots of different people try and answer that reason. But the reality is that we understand as Christians, through the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, through the good news that God made everything good, we broke it, and Jesus ultimately comes to fix it. Uh, the good news that he came and he lived a perfect, sinless, holy, holy, holy God Almighty kind of life in our place, because my life's not died on the cross to cleanse me from my sin, to set me apart for his glory, and I did nothing to earn any of these things, and that as we as the people of God live in the wake and the power of the resurrection of Jesus, that he didn't just die, but he is risen, present tense, he is risen, and he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God Almighty, and that before the foundations of the earth, before you could do anything to move towards him, he loved you first and saved you from yourselves if you're a Christian today. And if you're not a Christian today, welcome to Anchor Church. I want you to meet Jesus today. There's literally no more, nothing more important in the whole wide world that you would know him and the power of his gospel. And the reality of this lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, King Jesus, uh, changes how we understand why we are here why we are here. And, and today I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out there and prove from the text, hopefully, that the whole point of Jesus' life and ministry was the glory of God the Father. And the whole point of our, point of our life as his people is his glory. And that every other thing, every other Christian thing falls under that category. Well, you say, well, 
you know, if I'm thinking in my head and I'm thinking, well, what about, you know, when Jesus said there's nothing greater to do than love God and love others in a number of places, the great commandment. Well, yeah, but you love God and love others for his glory. You love God and love others for his glory. What's glory mean? We don't use the word glory, and I think it's really, we have to be really careful. If we don't know what a word means, as Americans, we tend to just throw it out. Let's find a new word for it. Uh, I don't think that's what we should do because the word is so prevalent in the Bible and so part of our life in Christ. Glory means to point to the beauty and the wonder and the awe of who God is. The Hebrew word kavod, which sounds really intense when you've got a throat about to give out on you, it means like heavy. The Hebrew word for glory has reference to heavy. We point to the weight and the beauty and the awesomeness of who God is. And we as his people uh, spend our whole lives pointing to that uh, reality. Now here in 17, you could take this. Excuse me, I'm going to be drinking a lot of water today. It's like signs up on my podium. Um, so, so you could take this. Uh, a, a lot of different directions. We could, we could study, man, this is a prayer that Jesus is about to pray for the church. We could learn about prayer from Jesus. We could take this line by line for a year, or at least uh, 23 weeks, right? We could take it line by line and look at the, the theology of it all because it's dense and it's meaty. And there's a number of angles you could take this text from. Uh, somebody else has preached this uh, a couple years ago, even in our church, uh, preached it in two weeks and focused on prayer. I reserve the pastoral preaching right to reapproach this text and preach it from a different angle, uh, not a different truth, but just a different angle. But as we dig in this massively de- dense text today, what I want us to do is it's just really simple. is two things. We're going to try and explain it. What do you mean when you say that, Jesus? And then reflect upon it. What do you mean, Jesus, when you say that? What does that mean for us? Um, And so we'll go ahead and do that. And we're going to see three main ideas, I think. God is glorified in his son. That's why we point to him with our whole lives. God is glorified in his son. Uh, God is glorified in his mission. And we have to unpack that word a lot, but we'll try and do that in our allowed time. And number three, uh, God is glorified in his people. So let's go ahead and start in 17 and 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The cross is coming. This is John 17. Jesus is about to be arrested. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to die on the cross. He's about to come and do the thing he came to do, or really the crowning achievement of what he came to do. Since you, uh, pardon me, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. We've talked about this some in this series, and we've talked about it regularly. There's sort of this glory dogpile in the Trinity. The Father's always pointing to his Son. The Son's always pointing to his Father. The Spirit's always pointing to each of them. Uh, that, that when we see in, in, within the Trinity uh, the glorification of God by God, that God lifts up his holy name and even points to himself and his Son, Jesus is about to glorify the Father on the cross. He's about to do the thing that he decided to do, Philippians 2, before the foundations of the earth. Philippians says that he did not not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant. What the heck does that mean? That word grasp means like take. So in Trinity, God himself, before the foundations of the earth, foreseeing and knowing that we would betray him, knowing we would sin against him, knowing you would fall short of the glory of God before you could say you were sorry or before you were even born, 
had a plan to save you from yourself, namely the cross of Jesus Christ, because you can't get right with God. God had to get right with you, and nowhere in there did he grasp equality with God, meaning he didn't say, I'm not going to go to the cross, I'm God. Why, don't, why does the Holy Spirit go to the cross? Jesus doesn't do that. He comes in the form of a servant to save us from ourselves. This is why he's going to gird up, this is a classic line, right? He's going to gird up his loins and wash their feet and says, do this to each other, serve each other. This is why Ephesians says, husband love your wife like Christ loves the church, giving himself up for the model for what it looks like to lead in the home as a husband is to lay down your life, your whole being for your wife, not just take a bullet for your wife, but lay down your hobbies for your wife and your preferences for your wife and serve and be a servant. Because why? It points to Jesus. It glorifies Jesus. It models Jesus. Your life becomes a reflection of the good news of the gospel that he came not to serve, but to, uh, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10. And all this, as he, as he does this, he glorifies God the Father because nothing is more valuable to Jesus than the glory of God. And God points to Jesus and Jesus points to God. Verse 2. Oh man, that was just verse 2. Double time. Since you have given him meaning he's talking about himself in the third person, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Jesus is a king, and he is the king of everything. To give, specifically here, eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus came to give life. The quality of life, this eternal life, is real life. You might live it up before you meet Jesus, but it's all death. You might have experiences, like, but there's nothing more real, nothing more lively, nothing more alive than a life when you're knowing God through Jesus Christ and the grace and mercy he gives us. There's no greater life when you know that you can't earn God's love, but that God came to save you regardless of that fact, that he didn't pick you because you're awesome at pool or foosball or any other thing you might find in a bar. He picked you because he's gracious. He picked you because he sent his son to give him authority to save you from yourself, to point to the power and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of his son, Jesus Christ. So God has it, gives it to his son. His son saves us. Let's keep going. Oh, this. This, I know I say this maybe almost every week, but this one, this one's really important. This verse, if you only memorize one verse, and I would encourage you to memorize the word if you only memorize one verse, memorize this one verse. Verse 3. And this is eternal life. That you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The most ultimate thing you can experience in life, the biggest, greatest, most powerful, enjoyable way to live, is knowing God who made everything in his son, Jesus Christ, who saves us from ourselves. That is eternal life. Well, how do I know if this person's a Christian? How do I know that they're saved? How do I know? How do I know? How do I know? It's not about how nice they are, how kind they are. It's not about anything because the reality is that you don't know Jesus because you're nice. You don't know Jesus because you're good. You know Jesus because he's good and he's gracious and he's merciful. How do I know? 
And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, one true God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave to me to do. Last week, great question. Two people came up after the service, asked the same question. Great question. You may have had it yourself. What was that question? The last thing we have uh, in the last part of chapter 8, 16, pardon me, uh, is that Jesus talks about the victory on the cross as if it is already done. Why? Because right now it's as good as done. Right now, sitting here in this room with his disciples about to be arrested, the world is as good as redeemed. The world is as good as saved. In Hebrew, it's called the prophetic perfect, where they speak about things in present tense. One of the most uh, clear examples of this is Isaiah 9, if you want to nerd out and check it afterwards. Uh, God talks about redemption in Isaiah 9, hundreds of years before Jesus even shows up, as if it's already done. Why? Because when God says yes, the answer is never no. That's why. Take it to the bank. Sovereign God of the universe. When he says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. You can say things like, I know God has forgiven me. I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. You're not the one who gets to make that call, friends. You can feel bad and, and guilty about the life, and you can feel condemned about the life you lived before Jesus and then you did after your Jesus. But guess what? I don't know if you know this. It's a good fact to know. I need a reminder of it every day. I'm not the king of the universe, and neither are you. Forgiveness doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus, and Jesus says it's finished. Jesus says you're redeemed, and Jesus says you're forgiven if you're his. You can say, I haven't forgiven myself, but that's not in your jurisdiction. Verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Most quoted Old Testament scripture by the New Testament. You know what it is? Psalm 110. What does Psalm 110 say? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, Jesus right now is sitting, ruling, and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. But why is that little verse so important? Uh, the Hebrew, that's why. And I'll just tell it to you, and then you'll know it when you take it to the bank. Yahweh, proper name for God, said to Adonai. What's Adonai? Adonai is the name that when people believed that the, the proper name of God was too holy to say and stopped saying that word, yod heh vav heh or the Tetragrammaton or any of the other words that you use there, which, by the way, if you're ministering to Jewish folks, it's really helpful that you know some of those. The yod heh vav heh you don't use the word, that name, Yahweh, that holy name, because it's set apart for them, and they think that you don't know what you're talking about. If you don't even know, you don't say his name. But anyways, the word they use in place of that name, what is that word? Adonai. So Bible translators get really confused when they try and translate that because that word's used in the Bible over and over and again for who? God. Well, what's Yahweh for? God. God said to God, well, that's confusing. God said to God, sit at my right hand. Except for when you understand that God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. Jesus sits right now ruling and reigning in glory. We're told amazing things about that reality. That he's interceding on your behalf. Some of, these, some of these are the drums on the drum kit. I cannot bang enough. Right now, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of sin, in the midst of strife, 
you have someone interceding with you uh, before the Father. His name is Jesus, and he's the one that paid the price for your sins and made you his own, and he goes to the Father on your behalf constantly. Constantly. And when you sin again and again and again, you lose your temper, you go 75 and 55, Flash universal sign of disapproval as you're doing that, which means you won't go fast enough. Whatever it might be, I don't know. You cheated at foosball because you thought that would get you in, right? I don't know, but he does. And if you're a Christian, he says, covered. You gave somebody a coat because you wanted people to say, oh, man, that guy's so generous. Yay, and celebrate him. Right things wrong, Luigi. Covered. You made an idol. Something in your life became more important than something else. Jesus, maybe money. Covered. Covered. That doesn't mean we don't turn. This is the thing that actually empowers us to repent. This is the thing, stuff that empowers us to say, that is covered and forgiven. So that means I can turn from that and I can even confess my sins and say, that was wrong of me to do that. Please forgive me. And know that I'm accepted by the God of the universe. Let's keep going. Okay. So God is glorified in his son. Clearly. He's glorified when we point to his son. He's glorified when we say his name. All this good, wonderful stuff. Oh, man. Okay. Verse 6. I have manifested your name. I have revealed your name. I have shown your name. Uh, uh, in both in Greek and Hebrew type uh, uh, writing in the Bible, uh, name isn't just name. It wasn't like he was like, hey, everybody, God's name's God. And they're like, oh, I didn't know. There's no way he means revealed your name. Uh, name is attached to like, the whole person. Jesus shows us God, you want to see God, look to Jesus. You want to hear God, listen to Jesus. This is God's word. It is in your hands. If you want God to speak to you, open his word and read it, please. Please. Manifest, I've revealed your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Okay, remember John, little... Footnote, I have to say every week, John's idea of the world, this word can be translated in a number of ways, but what John means here, means here is the people and the systems and everything organized against God. What were you saved out of the world? What does that mean? On my own, my life is organized against God. What did God do with that? Save me. Save me, right? This is the significance of the football verse. Is there a game on today? Someone's going to have a card in the end zone. There's got to be a game on somewhere if it's not here, right? There's a game. Someone, some guys right now have a Sharpie and a whiteboard all around the company or all around the country and they're writing 316. Why? Because God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God so loved the thing organized in rebellion against him that he sent his son to bleed and die to redeem people out of it. You didn't pick Jesus because it's logical. You didn't pick Jesus because you're smart. You didn't pick Jesus. Jesus picked you. Praise the Lord. Because on my own, I don't pick Jesus. On my own, I think Christianity is dumb. And yet there I am at like midnight on Sunday watching whatever was on my TV, some guy preaching the gospel. Not everybody on TV with a Bible is preaching the gospel, but did you know that some people on TV with a Bible are preaching the gospel? 
And God does wild stuff with that. Why in the world was a punk rock kid sitting at 12, other than I didn't want to do my homework and it was late and I was going to lie to my teacher about not doing my homework because I didn't love Jesus. Why in the world was I up watching that? Why wasn't I doing something else? God is gracious. He works with, with us, without us, and in spite of us, and does weird stuff to save us from ourselves, and I praise him every day for it. Now, God is glorified in his mission. Verse 7. Now they know everything you have given me is from you. For I have given you, given them the words that you gave to me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Sent. So when I say mission, the mission of God, I I want to be careful here. Uh, We have a tendency to conflate the idea of mission and evangelism. I used to do this a lot. I think it's actually more helpful to understand missionaries as people who do leave everything behind to go somewhere else. But don't forget, you're on God's mission. We are on God's mission. We are on Jesus' mission to Seattle. What is Jesus doing in Seattle? He is calling people from out of the world into himself. Well, how does he do that? We take the thing that he just said. We take the thing that Jesus gave to them that they gave to us and give it to somebody else. Jesus saves sinners from death to life. That is the good news of the gospel. This is the very thing that that, that Paul admonishes Timothy to do. Timothy, take what I gave to you, give it to faithful men, go and trust it to faithful men. You are here because somebody was given the package an important package, and they gave it to you. Maybe it was your mom. Maybe it was your dad. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a silly guy on TV at midnight. But you heard the truth. Jesus is who he said he was, and you repented and you believed. So he's telling him, so take this thing. They're on God's mission, taking this message. And how awesome is this? If we just stop and reflect for a moment that Jesus was given the truth by the Father, and Jesus gave it to the disciples who gave it to disciples who gave it to disciples who gave it to you. You have in your possession, in your mental arsenal, information from God. That's profound. You know who Jesus is. That comes from God. That comes from God. It glorifies God when we share that truth. I am praying for them. Wait, I see a slide. Receive them. Come to know that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. Yeah, okay. Verse 9. Verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now Jesus, of course, knows who's coming from the world. He, he knows about... Now, we've got to get careful here, right? So he's, he's here. He's not yet been crucified. He's not yet been resurrected. He has set aside his divine rights. Right? So everything he's got is stuff that the Father has revealed to him. But ultimately now sitting, even truer now, sitting, ruling and reigning at the Father's side, resurrected, he knew before May 4th, 1981, in fact, he knew Ephesians 1, before the foundations of the earth, he was going to save me out of the world. And I was in the world. Right? He, he knew you before you were born. 
when you want to think about how little you have done, and you can look at this a couple of ways, right? You can look at this and say, how, is how little I've done for God to love me? Man, I'm really horrible. Or you can see it and say, man, God is really, really amazing. The pile of stuff to get you in good graces with God, there is no pile of stuff. There's nothing. There's not, a, 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 there's not a, the teeniest, tiniest piece of dust on the scale. It's all God, all the time, saving you from yourself, which is amazing. All mine are yours. If you're a Christian, you belong to the God of the universe. Property of God. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. Now hear this. So even though I just said that thing, we didn't earn his love in any way, right? So we stop there. We kind of get to what, what's been called uh, wisely, and I think rightly, Puritan worm theology, where you never get past the fact that you did nothing to earn God's love. You never get past the filthiness of your own sin. You never get past the, the corrodedness of your own motives, ever, ever. but we keep going one step further. And by the way, not all Puritans had that particular theology. Some did, though. So we've done nothing to earn it. We've done nothing to get there. We've done nothing to, to know God, right? But hear this. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Your life exists for the glory of God. You get to live a life that points to how awesome and wonderful Jesus is. And that is in the minutia of your life. That's not, oh, if I could only get like a ministry job, then I will point to God and his glory. If I could just lead a community group or make a disciple, then I get to point to God and his glory. Day one, as a regenerate individual, your life begins to exist now no longer at war against God, but for his glory. Even our mess-ups are for his glory. Even when I mess up on my own, fully responsible for my own junk, when I turn from the junk and I turn to him, when I live in the great mighty covering of his blood, even that act, that act that says, yeah, I'm not God and he is and he saved me, gives him glory. Because he's so gracious to us. How gracious is God to us? So, so gracious, right? How far is the east from the west? I don't know, right? You say, well, you know, if you get in a car and you drive around, you get there. Or if the universe is expanding all the time forever. You ever thought about that one? Bring physics into it. If, not a science guy, by the way, so if this is a wrong footnote, my science friends correct me afterwards and I won't ever say it again. But if, if the theory is correct and the universe is expanding in either direction uh, infinitely and on, in an ongoing way, how far then is the east from the west in a linear fashion Oh, man, the forgiveness of God. I'm quoting Romans, by the way. He said, My, your sin is as far as the east is from the west. Just saying. And then at least one or two signs. When you see someone having a quiet conversation with me afterwards, just, that's me getting rebuked by one of the science guys, and I'll never say it again. But hey. Hey. <laughs> and I need to drink water. Okay. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified. I'm glorified in them. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world. This is another one of those cases. He's not yet gone to the cross. He's not yet had the experience with Pilate. But it's his, his seated, seatedness, ruling and reigning next to God is as good as done. 
but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Church, church, it's not an individual sport. This is not the javelin toss. I don't know a sport where you have this many people on the team. I don't really know many sports, so hey. We do this together, that we might be one, that we might be on the same page, that being a Christian, really being a member of a church means that you're taking responsibility for the church and the church is taking responsibility for you. That means we weep with the weeping and we have joy with those who are in joy and we help those in need. And sometimes, yeah, you get help in need. It can't be both, right? It's not that you hide your need and, and just pour out for others and others and you're hurting and you never tell anybody. You're robbing people a chance to have that blessing to do the very thing you love to do, and that's to help you. We're one. We're one in the gospel. We believe one Jesus, the Jesus. We believe one Bible. Uh, we are one community in Christ. Have you ever noticed? I have this thing, right? So, so okay, so my job means that oftentimes, and I, and I love my job and I love you, so don't get this wrong, I spend most of my time with church folks. Most of my time is spent reading the Bible with church folks, doing counseling with church. I spend most of my time with Christian people. My family are Christian. They're at my house all the time, right? I'm with Christian people all the time, which means that you, and I say this often because I'm not jealous, but I'm really thankful for you. Wherever you're working, whatever you're doing, you have more access to more people who don't know Jesus than I do. Please remember that as you go into the world. Now, having said that, every once in a while, every once in a while, every, when you get someone to babysit for three to four children so you can leave town for a week, Every once in a while, I'm on a plane, and, and I'm always praying, God, I'm at the airport, and I'm on this plane. I would love that you would sit me next to a totally depraved, non-Christian person, that I could share the gospel with them, and they could receive your love. And five minutes in, it turns out it's a Christian businesswoman who's, who's excited to go back you know, to Texas, where her husband is, and we're, we're doing this thing. And it's like every time I sit next to a regenerate person on the airplane. Now, I believe in God's sovereignty, so what does that mean? Honestly, usually in his grace, he's got some ministry for me. Usually they're there to encourage me. They're usually there to tell me something encouraging. They're usually there to pray for me or do something like that. But what never ceases to amaze me is how quickly we have something in common. What do I have in common with a businesswoman from Texas? Uh, you know, this is the last airplane ride I was on. This is not a joke, right? Lovely, awesome woman. Uh, all these ministries she's up to, buying houses and letting people stay in them, and all this just amazing, cool stuff, and grandkids and all this awesome stuff. How quickly did we find unity? How quickly did this person I have absolutely nothing in common with, how quickly did her and I and my wife have a wonderful, lovely conversation about Jesus and, and living for him? Because that was the only thing we have in common. But we're one. Why? Same Jesus. That's why. Not because I have interesting things to say. I'm pretty boring on a plane. Uh, okay. Oh, phew. okay, we gotta keep going. Keep them in your name. Man, thank you, Jesus. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He knew it was going to happen. It was part of the scripture being fulfilled. Verse 13, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, 
that they may have my joy in themselves. And he's going to again talk to us about the chaos of what it is to be a Christian here on planet Earth. I want you to see that this pointing to Jesus peace, this glory peace, is integral with us enjoying Jesus in the midst of all chaos. I have given them your word. God has spoken. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Many times in many ways God spoke, but in these last days he's spoken to us through his son. That was a truncated quote, by the way. Prophets and stuff never change. We believe God has spoken. Again, read your Bible. God has spoken. He's spoken to you through his word. He's given us this truth. We believe the whole Bible. Not the most popular thing in 2014. Not just part of the Bible. Not just some of the Bible. Not just the back half of the Bible. Not the front half of the Bible. The whole Bible. All the Bible and everything it says. By the way, it's not Anchor Bible Church, but it might as well be because we are Bible people. Bible Church. We love the word and we submit to it all the time. Bible people. I have given them your word and the world, listen, church, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. That's the deal. But you know what happens when we cling to Jesus when the world says drop it, edit it, don't talk about it. Let go of that. Give up that doctrine. You don't think he's the way, the truth, and the life. Definite article, do you? Sometimes there is heat. And just as Jesus clung to the mission of God the Father and died on the cross for his glory, we, the church, in the midst of chaos, cling to the truth of what Jesus has taught us and said to us, and we never, ever, ever let it go, regardless of how hard people try and smack it out of our hands. And that truth, when we say, Jesus is more valuable than my opinion, your opinion of me, Jesus is more valuable than what you might say of me, Jesus is more valuable than the false things you might say of me, I hold to Jesus no matter how hot the heat gets, that brings him glory. Because what am I saying in that moment? There's nothing more valuable to me than Jesus. There's nothing more valuable to me than Jesus. This is the weight. This is the glory. This is the beauty. And his name is Jesus, period. I do not ask, listen to this too, though, <laughs> when the heat's turned up. I do not ask that you keep them, or I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So while we cling tightly, we also don't run for cover. We don't run for the bunker said it before, I'll say it again. You want to get out of sin? You want to stay away from sin? So you want to, like, I got to get away from sin, so I got to go away from sinners. So I get away from all these non-Christian people. And then you find yourself in a huddled up church, and it's just you, and you got some barricades up, and you're against the rest of the world. Turns out when you get in there, you realize, oh, man, even though we're in here, and, I, and all these people are regenerate, it turns out there's still sin in here. And so then you bunker down a little bit further, and you and your family, uh, you know, and hey, if you do this, I'm not mean. If you get property in Snohomish or something, I'm not this is not against you or if you're from that. I'm saying if you go with the intent of going there. I mean, I got goats. I literally have goats living in my backyard. So, hey, I'm not. God's called me to the city, but I'll move the country into my backyard as much as I possibly can. So this is not a knock against Snohomish. That is, you could breathe out there. Anyways, 
But if you move to the country with the intention that you're going to go away from sinners, you're there with your family. I'm there with my family of six away from sinners. It turns out there's still sin there. So then if it's just me, then I'll really get away from sin, except for the fact that I'm still a sinner all by myself. And then I'm all by myself, right? If you move to the country because the country is awesome, that's where God's called you, hey, power to the people. Uh, If you move to get away from sinners, I'm sorry. You go wherever you go. My dad's favorite horrible movie. Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> hey, man, no matter where you go, there you are. My dad would say that all the time. He's probably saying it somewhere right now. <laughs> no matter where you go, there you are. And there you are, still needing Jesus. So that's saying take it out of the world. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean when you're needy, you're like, this is a sin party. And I think I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to, I'm a holy, sanctified person. I'm actually going to step out of this particular party. It doesn't mean it's not hard. My neighborhood's hard sometimes, I'll tell you that. Um, but it means that we're in the world. But he gives us good, good encouragement for it. Let's keep going. Uh, 14. I've given them, up, 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 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but, second half of the verse is encouraging for us, that you keep them from the evil one. Remember, Satan is the head of the world. So it's not just Satan. It's the world. It's the, it's the stuff that's against. It's the people who aren't going to like you when you're going to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. They're just not going to like you because you claim Christ. He's protecting us. He's guiding us. Uh, verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. We're here. We live on planet Earth. But your life should be distinct from your neighbors. We're Seattleites. You know, you might have a Prius and drink coffee and or tea now. Tea is better, right? But your tea and your Prius, and that's fine. But there should be something different at the same time about you, right? You can look and sound like a Seattleite, but there's something different about you because you don't fully look like a Seattleite. We are aliens. We are exiles. We are foreigners here. And, and we live in the weird tension of being in the world but not of the world. That's a whole sermon right there, by the way, but I have to keep going. Here's the good news. 17, sanctify them in the truth. How do you get set apart the truth? You drive a Prius, but you know why you drive the Prius? Because Jesus is king if you're going to drive a Prius or whatever other thing. Do they still make Priuses? I don't know. Uh, I'll just say I'm not driving one. Uh, I do not, uh, that, that, that evil one, 16, world, sanctify them, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Nothing trumps the Bible. If something contradicts the Bible, we go with the Bible. All truth is God's truth. And that also means that we don't, we can wait. Like this isn't, this isn't a natural history textbook. Okay? But we believe what it reveals about the creation of all things. And sometimes we can look at something, something I don't know. I wasn't there, neither were you. That is another sermon in and of itself. But here we go. Um, this trumps everything. Period. 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for, they, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified, or set apart, set apart in the truth. So Jesus came, walked among sinners, didn't sin. He came and loved people who were unlovable, but did not walk in their ways, he walked in God's ways. Likewise, as the church, we stay holy, we stay set apart, we stay sanctified. Again, that's another sermon for another day. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those, this one's for you, Anchor Church, 
who will believe, future tense, in me through their word. That's you. That's Jesus 2,000 years ago praying for you. Amazing. That they, will, uh, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Uh, our life as a church together reflects and echoes into the world the reality that God the Father sent the Son to save people from himself. Why are you here? The coffee is awesome. Conrad plays a ukulele, which is awesome. He's not playing ukulele, dude. He's playing piano. Piano. Awesome piano jams, right? Coffee. We're a church that has a parking lot. People who know Seattle are like, oh, there, yeah. Um, maybe. But why are we here? We're here for the glory of God. We're here that our church in this community would be a people that echo to a dying world the reality that Jesus saves sinners. Why do you live on your block that the world might know that Jesus saves sinners? Why do you live in Seattle or the greater area that the world might know that Jesus saves sinners? Why do you live uh, uh, maybe in Bozeman, Montana or Anchorage, Alaska or, or somewhere in the middle of the desert in the southwest so the world might know that Jesus saves sinners as we point to him in all his glory? And join me with everything we've got. 22, verse 22, 22 seconds to go. Here we go. The glory, oh man, this is a good one. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The glory you have given me, I have given to them. Jesus is glorified in his people. Jesus knows who God the Father is, and that's the gift he's given you. You might glory in him. That is the most glorious, wonderful truth in the universe. The God of the Bible is true. The God of the Bible, the Bible is real. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Oh. Loved by God the way that he loved the Son. I mean, this is kind of where we get into to reflection. right? We can explain that, right? The end there is a locative sphere, a locative sphere. It's a fancy, fancy grammatical blah, 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 blah. What it means is that you're in Christ. You live in the kingdom of God with Jesus. That's awesome. You're loved by God. That's awesome. And that we have a relationship, though not that of the Trinity, but we're involved in this thing because God has welcomed us into his family. He's going to go further. 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The end game of the universe is the people of God with God enjoying him forever. When we've been there 
10,000 years bright shining as the sun with no less days to sing his praise than when we'd first begun. Forever, ever joy in God forever. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. Verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, praise the Lord, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. If you don't know Jesus, the point of your whole life is to know him, to love him, to enjoy him, and to glorify him. And as I've said, there's nothing you do to earn that. You turn to him. You receive him. You receive his forgiveness. You receive his grace. You receive his love. It's not you get cleaned up and come to Christ. Christ comes to get you and he cleans you up. That is the good news of the gospel. If you are a Christian, why are you here? What is the point of your life? To glorify God. To glorify God. To with your whole life and being point to his goodness and his holiness and his glory and his wonder and his beauty and his love. We can point to a thousand other things. We can think a thousand other things are more valuable or more important or more true or more lovely. Hang on and don't let go to Jesus. If there's something like that, you turn from it. Turn from it and you turn to him. Repentance isn't about us making sure that we have a good report card. It's about us turning from the things that are less valuable and turning to the thing that is more valuable. We turn from sin, and it's not just stop sinning. It's turning from sin and to Jesus and receiving his forgiveness and receiving his love. The point of my repentance is I want more Jesus. I want more glory. I want to know him more and honor him more and glorify him more. Let's pray. Jesus, you are glorious. You are wonderful. You are lovely. You are worthy of our honor and praise. Lord, I pray we would come and sing in celebration now. I pray that we t- as we take communion and remember your body broken and blood shed for our sins, yes, we consider our sin, and yes, we repent of it, but we also do it because we know we are loved by you, and we come to celebrate that you died in our place. We come to celebrate the fact that you died on that cross and made us free. We come to celebrate that you've forgiven us from our sins. We come to celebrate that we are one in you, and we get to be the church, and to proclaim your body broken and blood shed for our sins and celebrate. And we stand up to sing and celebrate who you are and celebrate your holiness and your wonder and your glory and that you are the king of the universe. Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy and in your name, Jesus Christ, amen.